Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. I've sat in prison for years and wondered what what was going on with all this, right? I have no clue what these people were doing with me. It was Bruce, Judy, and Rita who pointed the finger at me. Once they got the finger at me and they started coming after me, they brought me into the precinct and they talked to me. I gave the DNA samples. I told them everything that happened on the weekend. They never checked my alibi. They just focused on me, right? Anybody else you can think of that would be up there that would have a problem with Dick? Or that might want to hurt him? Well, who, who did I tell you that would might want to hurt him besides the girls? And, 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 and the son? Did I tell you anybody else would want to hurt him? I don't think so. No. I'm John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, where justice lies. This is our final episode, or should I say, our final planned episode. If new information or developments crop up, you can bet I'll be back to update you. We also may post Rob Parker's and Laura Seamer's actual final arguments as bonus episodes in the future. Now, I started last episode seeing if I could make a case for the actual innocence of Jeffrey Abramowski the father of two who is serving a life sentence for the 2002 murder of 78-year-old Courtney Dick Crandall. I started by questioning the state's theory that Dick was killed on Saturday. That was important to the state because that was the day that they had a witness who claimed to have seen Jeff in the trailer park and another witness who said he dropped Jeff off that day at the trailer park. Jeff denied being there, but the state used both witnesses in both of his trials. But as you heard, and again, you heard this stuff, the jury did not get to. There were plenty of people who put Dick alive and well into the evening on Saturday. You could say their testimony destroyed the state's theory that all this went down on Saturday. And we know Jeff had an airtight alibi for Sunday. Remember, he was with his friend Donald Hughes buying tires at Sears, and then he went to Andretti's theme park to play video games in the arcade with him before being dropped off back at Bubba's house where he was staying. Also, remember Jeff had no car at the time. But before we get more into what Donald Hughes had to say, I'd like to take a deeper look at another piece of evidence. A gigantic piece of evidence that once again the police and the state simply glossed over. Why? Well, I can only assume it's because this piece of evidence did not fit in with their narrative that Jeff Abramowski was the killer. Remember what the lead detective in this case, Gary Harrell, said on the witness stand regarding how he approaches a case? It's worth listening to again. When we work investigations, uh, we uh, assume certain things with certain evidence. We reconstruct. We uh, go with what we believe the evidence is going to show. Sometimes that may appear to be 
not like the evidence will later come out to be. He says we go with what we believe the evidence is going to show. Is that what happened in this case? Did they believe the evidence would point to Jeff and they were just too blind to see the mountain of evidence that pointed at Bruce, Rita, and Judy? Is trace or touch DNA stronger evidence than a snarl of hair clutched in a dead man's hand or blood found in a bathroom sink? Is Jeff's consistent story more damning than the continuous lies that the Alabama trio spin? I so wish that Gary Harrell would talk to me because, as you know, he maintains the right man, Jeff, is in prison for this murder. But he hasn't responded to my repeated attempts to get together, and I just have so many questions for him. But back to this idea of don't let the evidence get in the way of a good theory. And that leads me to the blonde hair. Remember, everyone has described Bruce Foley as having dyed bleach blonde hair. Well, something was discovered by the medical examiner when he was doing the autopsy of Dick Crandall. Doctor, um, the prosecutor asked you about hairs found in the left hand of the victim? Yes. Were there also hairs found in the right hand? No, I think I said only two very fine white hairs on the right index finger. From the right index finger? Yes, that's yes. what I oh, have okay. the report. Okay, so there were, there were white hairs? Yeah. Do you know whose hairs those were? No. So, there were two small, fine white hairs found on Dick's right index finger. Hmm. Could it have been dyed bleach blonde hair? Well, we'll never know because it was never tested. Why not? Great question. I'm still trying to find an answer to that. I asked the prosecutor, Rob Parker, now retired, and he only remembers the snarl of Judy's hair. I spoke with Jeff's defense attorney, Laura Seamers, and she remembers thinking... The hair had to belong to Bruce, but can't remember why it was never tested. Now, there is a reason why I wanted to play all those clips last episode about the color of Bruce's hair. That is, because everyone described it the same way, except for one person. Because remember, if those two very fine white hairs belonged to Bruce, then it wouldn't fit in with what the police were trying to prove. What color was Bruce Foley's hair back then? Do you remember? It appeared to be orange to me. Orange? I mean, like dyed? Or could you tell? Well, like people put sun in on their hair and their hair turns orange. It, it looked orange. Okay, so we have the mugshot of Bruce Foley in Alabama taken one day before detectives interviewed him. And it is stone cold, bleach blonde hair, nearly white. There is nothing orange about it. Orange? So just to recap, we have two unidentified whitish hairs at the crime scene. Wait, not just at the crime scene, but on Dick's hand. And along with those two white hairs, there is a tangle of Judy Foley's hair in his other hand, and of course, her adult son, Bruce's blood in the master bathroom sink. And that leads us to DNA. Or as Keith Morrison would say, pesky DNA. Anyway... Just how small was the amount of DNA found under one of Crandall's nails that couldn't exclude Jeff? Well, we heard in an earlier episode that Jeff's DNA expert, Candy Zuliger, tested the nail clippings and found no trace of Jeff's DNA. Now, the most likely reason for that is that the sample was so small that it got used up in the first state lab test. Now remember, 
The state's DNA expert, Gary Daniels, said he only matched Jeff on, quote, two or three of 13 loci, close quote. But according to Daniels, what made it stand out was that he found a unique marker that Jeff also has, known as 17.3. You saw that. Did you do the test again to confirm it? I attempted to, yes. And the second time, did you get the 17.3? I did not get it the second time, but like, as I said, it was very close to the 100 RFU value. Um, I did want to attempt to, to repeat it, and I fa in fact, I repeated Mr. Um, Abramowski's profile and got the 17.3 twice. But in the unknown sample, I did not get it twice, and it's because the DNA is very limited there. I attempted it. I could not get it twice. That doesn't mean that it wasn't there the first time, in my opinion. Doesn't mean that it was, though, right? Well, I think it's, I, if it's there, I think it's acceptable to say that it's there, and it's a rare allele. But when you did the second test to confirm it, it wasn't there. You couldn't confirm we, it. Well, nowadays we don't even need a test to confirm it. If it's in the known profile, Let's not talk about nowadays. Let's talk about 2002. Oh, you want to talk about 2002? Yeah. And at that time, we tried to confirm unusual things. But this one you couldn't confirm? That's why there's a question mark beside it. Okay. That's on the, that's on the summary sheet. So Jeff Abramowski was sent to prison for life on the basis of one test, a test that could not be confirmed a second time, a test where the state's DNA expert added a handwritten question mark to the report. Am I hearing this right? Now, it's no secret that I've been critical of how law enforcement handled this case. How they seem to believe the outrageous lies and stories of Judy, Bruce, and Rita, and supposedly bought their alibi of being out of town during the murder. I've been critical of how they seem to focus solely on Jeff right from the get-go, ignoring other key pieces of evidence. I've been critical of how they arrested Jeff for the murder even before the blood in the bathroom was identified as Bruce's. I've been critical when I hear them lie on the witness stand, obviously. But is there more? Remember when I said just about everyone in this case lied or changed their story? Well, that brings us back around to good old Donald Hughes. Remember, he was Jeff's friend, who when interviewed two days after Dick's body was found, perfectly recollected spending Sunday with Jeff. He had to buy tires for his mother's car and he picked up Jeff for company. Then they went to Andretti's and played video games for a few hours before he dropped the carless Jeff off at Bubba's house. Well, six months later, Donald Hughes goes on tape again with police and suddenly remembers some key details that he never mentioned the first time. Uh, a couple months ago, you talked with... Uh... Sergeant Todd Goodyear and Victoria someone about correct. this uh, Dick Crandall murder case. Is that correct? That's correct. And I talked to you from time to time. I even came here one day and talked to you in person. Absolutely. And I talked to you on the phone, and, and you've uh, uh, know uh, Jeff Abramowski, who was charged with the murder. Correct. Catch that? Gary Harrell has been talking to Donald Hughes over the months and even visited him and spoke in person before this tape was ever produced. Boy, I would just love some recordings of those conversations. Back to Donald. I picked him up at Bubba's house, and I know the time exactly because I checked the, the uh, 
the uh, fire receipt. They, they invited me into the house. I went there about 4 o'clock to pick him up. And I went into the house. And as soon as I got in there, the first thing I noticed was a heavy smell of soap. Like, like 10 people took a shower, not one. I mean, I'm like, Jesus. What what's going on in here? I mean, would you, would you wash the house? I'm looking, the house is dirty. Well, I took a shower. I says to him, hey, it smells like you took ten showers. You know? Well, who all was there that day? Uh, just me, Bubba, and Jeff. Do you think he was supposed to say cleaning supplies and bleach instead of soap? Uh, the reason I was picking them up, and this is something that we would do on limited occasion, when we go to Andretti and we would drive the Daytona cars, the virtual reality games. And that's the thing that I was picking them up for. You got your tires first? I got my tires first. It's, it's here. They had a sale that day. Which which Sears? Uh, that's the Sears on Babcock Street. But before I stopped there, after, when I left, when I left this guy Bubba, Bubba in, in, in uh, Jeff's house, after talking about the, you know, the amount of soap, Jeff gets in the car and he's got a paper bag with him. Okay? Now, I mean the type of grocery paper bag that may be a uh, foot and a half long, you know. Brown paper bag. Brown paper bag that I couldn't see through. Now, somebody gets in my car with, with, with that, and I'm like, what'd you do, bring your lunch? And he goes, no, it's just something I gotta throw away. I said, well, I don't want to the trash. I don't want it in the car. Throw it away right here. There's trash barrels over there. Ah, Bob doesn't want it here. That's what he told me. I said, okay. Did it smell? Not that I noticed. Not that I noticed. Uh, it looked like it weighed a couple of pounds, though. It looked like there was some flat weight, you know, in there. But I didn't open the bag. Uh, the first place we see, says, as soon as we get to a, a, a store and a dumpster, I'll throw it away. I'll get it out of the car. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, then it's nothing that i got to worry about. It's not contraband, okay? You know, I mean, I would be... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I wouldn't let that... I wouldn't want any contraband in the car. Did he ever say what was in the bag? No. No, he said trash. So that's that's what he told me. And uh, I, although I didn't understand quite why he, he couldn't throw it away there, uh, he, he told me Bubba, Bubba said he didn't want it in his trash barrel. Uh, I was a little suspicious of that, but the first store that we ran into, I think, was the 7-Eleven. Jeff got out of the car with that paper bag, threw it in the dumpster, walked into the store, and came out with a Sunday paper. Was that the, what, what 7-Eleven was that? That's the one on... Uh, that of, 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 uh, and Croton. Okay. Now that's Donald's story six months after the murder, after he's spent a bit of time talking to the detective trying to build a case against Jeff. Two days after Dick is found murder, Donald Hughes tells police a very different story. For one, he thinks that the killers definitely had to be the sisters, as he referred to Judy and Rita, and Judy's son, Bruce. He describes Jeff as being meek, I believe the word he uses is uh, pansy. He's a, like a pushover kind of a... He's a pansy kind of a guy, right. you know? Right. Uh, like I told you, I'd slap him. If, mm-hmm. if, you know, if you back mouth my mother or me, I'll, I'd just slap him. And, you know, not to really hurt How him. How would he react if somebody wronged him? <sighs> I don't I, I, I I'm not afraid of him. I mean, yeah. I mean, know. if somebody did something to him, I mean, uh, I don't think stole he'd... from him or didn't pay him something or left him somewhere and stranded or what, how would he react to that? I see what you're getting at. Uh, I, 
Man, that, that's just speculation. Though. Sure, and I understand. No, and I understand it, but I don't know him. Hey, if he pissed me off, I'd let him off in the field, and in, 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 I'd let him off in the desert, and I wouldn't give a shit what he thought about. Mm. You know, I wouldn't be worried about him doing anything. He know he he'd have to screw up to piss me off. Right. So, I mean, I got to look at it from my point of view. Sure. All right. So, would he do? I don't think he'd do anything to me. Would he do anything to to some uh, old guy? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think that the, that uh, just what I told you. I, th right. I think those girls right. are guilty of of uh, putting the sun up to it. Okay. I mean, that's the that's that's what I think. That's that's it. I know, and I don't think it was. I don't think it would be Jeff. But after who knows how many conversations with Harold, and six months later, Hughes starts to have some very different memories. He remembers that Jeff carried a mysterious brown bag that he needed to dump somewhere. Come on now. That's the kind of detail that would spring right to the front of your mind if a cop is asking you questions about a murder. I don't buy that someone could forget that and then just remember it six months later. But I would suggest that it's a convenient detail the police might need. Remember, Gary couldn't find anything in Bubba's home to incriminate Jeff. No bloody clothes or shoes, nothing. Donald Hughes could fill in the missing puzzle piece. But I'm thinking, and remember, I'm playing defense attorney here, that the state decided not to use Hughes at trial because, well, if you confuse bleach with soap and get hung up on how good Jeff smelled that day, then who knows what else you might screw up. So these tidbits here are from Donald Hughes' interviews with police. He was never called to testify. One last thing before we leave Mr. Hughes alone. Remember he said he once smacked Jeff for insulting his mother, and Jeff cowered. He said he could drop Jeff off in the middle of nowhere and never worry about retribution. He basically said Jeff would never fight back. And well, listen to what he says six months later. And you talked to me about Jeff, uh, did a roundhouse one of day. Yeah, about a week before this. So Jeff goes from being a pansy to being threatening and taking a swing at him. Talking with Gary Harrell for six months really must have jogged Hughes' memory, huh? Wow. Let's be honest here. Jeff Abramowski never stood a chance in this case. It didn't matter that his lawyer was ill and not taking her meds. It didn't matter that his appellate lawyer got arrested for drug paraphernalia and is no longer practicing. He could have had Perry Mason, and he still wouldn't have stood a chance. Let's take a very short break here to talk about a live podcast event next week. A dead district attorney, a dead barber, a drug-addicted judge, a businessman hiding, armed and scared. One woman, one name, binds them all. Rainella. The fabric of her life is woven with tragedy and violence, politics and pain, and even now, suspense. Come meet her on Season 1 of Suspicion, available on just about every major podcast platform. Hey guys, this is John Torres from Murder on the Space Coast, hoping that you'll join me on March 6th at the Surfside Playhouse in Cocoa Beach for our end-of-season wrap-up event. The cost is $12.50 a person, which gets you some great apps, 
and a chance to speak with and ask questions of some of the players that made Season 4 so compelling, including Jeff's daughter Jamie. There will also be an update on Season 3's Brandy Hall case. Wine, beer, coffee, and soft drinks will be available for purchase, and a portion of the proceeds are going to the Brevard Opioid Abuse Task Force. We're not making any money on this event, so the more people who come, the more we can donate to such a great cause. What are you waiting for? Get your tickets now. Go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com and click the link. They were teens, locked away for life for murder. But now they're getting a second chance. Uncertain Terms, a new podcast from T.C. Palm, explains why judges are resentencing youthful offenders, why families are having to relive the painful murders, why some killers are being set free. Look for it on tcpalm.com or your favorite podcast app. Okay, thanks. We're back. And seriously, it would be great to meet more of my listeners in person, so please try and make it out to the event. Remember, tickets are available at floridatoday.com backslash tickets. Okay, now, so to claim that Jeff Abramowski is innocent, we need to look at who might have killed Dick Crandall. Because obviously, Dick was brutally murdered. Someone killed him in a rage. And there will be little surprise here. Now, Donald Hughes wasn't the only person to initially suggest the murderers had to have been Judy, Rita, and Bruce. Remember, we've heard clips throughout from Donald Hughes, Kathy Eberhardt, and others saying just that. We heard from David Bowles and Eric Sprague, two of Dick's neighbors, and countless others, really, about the bad blood between Bruce and Dick. We heard about the Mother's Day fight just a week earlier when Bruce tried taking a swing at Dick with a golf club. We heard from numerous eyewitnesses who said Dick had a black eye. But I want you to listen to a clip from neighbor Mary Lou Hooker that I used at the very end of last episode as a teaser. Well, we had returned from dinner on on that day, Mother's Day, and sheriff cars and things were at that residence, and uh, neighbors were all standing around talking, and somebody in that group of people uh, had mentioned that it was Judy's son, Brian, uh, had gotten to a confrontation, actually a physical confrontation with Dick, and um, he had left, I believe, before the sheriff arrived, but one of his comments was made that he would be back, you know, he would be back to get him. To get him? To get him. And who are we, who are we referring to that he was going to come back to get, just for a tape, just so we know? Uh, Dick. According to this woman, Bruce vows that he would come back and get Dick. This is important. We've heard a lot about the bad blood in the brawl and how Bruce fled. But we never heard that he made a threat. The old man belittled him and now forced him to run and hide. And Bruce, perhaps, had had enough. Maybe he simmered and sulked the following week while living with his mother and aunt in his aunt's small apartment in nearby Indian Harbor Beach. Was that when the murderous plan was hatched? If so, and remember, this is me trying to look at who else might have killed Dick. This is not a case that police or prosecutors ever put together. Rita, Judy, and Bruce were never charged with Dick's murder. Rita and Judy, as you know, are dead. Bruce is 51 years old and serving lifetime probation in Alabama. And my efforts to talk with him have not been successful. Okay, but back to the possibility. If you're going to kill someone, you need an alibi. 
Could Judy, Rita, and Bruce have decided they would go to Alabama? And if caught, they would give up Jeff's name. Remember, 24 hours into what was supposed to be a 10-hour drive to Alabama, the trio were supposedly only just crossing the Georgia border from Florida. That leaves plenty of time to drive back, kill Dick, and make it to Alabama by Monday afternoon. Even Sheriff's agent Todd Goodyear, while interviewing Donald Hughes, acknowledges a large window of opportunity there for just about anything to have happened. Well, the best we can say is he was seen sometime before the weekend, and yeah, he was found after the weekend, so that's kind of the window of opportunity there, okay. so that, that you know, we're not real sure well, plenty of, that, when it happened. plenty but, of time then for, for any of them to do anything. Sure. You know, I mean, I don't know how far Alabama is. I've never been to Alabama, mm-hmm. and I don't intend to go there. So that's kind of why we're asking, because, I mean, there's a big window of opportunity that something could happen. Now, we heard in episode 5 how they basically lied about everything when questioned by police. But I'd like to hammer a few of those points home right now. Judy, Bruce, and Rita tell police that the trio had made peace with Dick, and all was good when they took off for Alabama. In the same interview, they claimed calling the cops on Dick just that Friday, right before they supposedly left, because Dick was by Rita's place threatening to kill her dog. At trial, they changed that story and now said Jeff was there threatening the dog. The same Jeff who was carless and who would have had to get a ride across the causeway and then back home in order to do so. Again, they tell police that they have made up with Dick. No bad blood there. Yet when they need money, Judy Foley calls Rita's boyfriend Sunday night asking for cash. Why wouldn't she call Dick? Was it because she knew he was dead? Here's Rita's boyfriend talking with investigators. Okay, and have you heard from them on the phone since then? Yes, I heard from Judy twice. What did Judy want? Judy, uh, Sunday night about 10 o'clock, she called and wanted me to send $200. Is that unusual? Did she offer, ask for money before? Uh, she said if she needed money, for what? She, would, she would ask to get back home. They went to Alabama, they only had $280 with them when they left. Okay, is that unusual though? Do they ask for money often? Well, this is the first time it's ever happened okay. with me. Has Rita asked you for money before? Oh, yes. Okay, but... It's the only way she could get any money. So okay. Just to give her okay, money. so Judy called and asked for money. What did she say? Why didn't Rita call? She said Rita was sick and her feet were all swollen. Okay. And she was unable to, uh, to call. Okay. I suggest that Rita was distraught and could not talk. Remember when we heard Judy wearing a wire trying to trap Jeff? She said Rita was sick because she had taken a bunch of sleeping pills that weekend. Could she have tried to kill herself? No one says that, but remember, she did kill herself in 2017. The trio claim they got lost on this trip, but remember, this is a trip to their hometown that they've made many, many times over the years. Judy says she did some of the driving, and that's why they got lost. Rita says that she did all of the driving because Judy doesn't drive. Rita testifies that she usually drives straight through to Alabama, but this time, somehow, it took three days. Remember the expensive and personal necklace Bruce was found with in Alabama that belonged to Dick? He tells cops in Alabama that Dick had given his mother that necklace several months ago. In court, though, at Jeff's trial, he says that he gave it to his mom the night they were leaving to Alabama. I guess in between threatening the dog and trying to run them out of town, he decided to give them a necklace. Remember this clip from Rita's boyfriend about the necklace? Uh, Dick, from what I was told by Bruce and Judy... That Dick had given given a necklace with a, I think it was a, uh, 
anchor mm -hmm. or something on it that was worth somewhere around three thousand to thirty-five hundred dollars, and there was a ring, I believe, also mentioned. When that, did you first hear about the necklace? Oh, this was early on in the week. It's probably Monday or Tuesday or so that she supposedly she had this for some time. Okay. But I've never witnessed her with it. Only that they talked about it. And what would they say about it? Only that it was worth a lot of money. And later on, they said a dick had went to all these pawn shops and prevented her from going out and selling it so she, she could go back home, meaning Alabama. That doesn't sound like the behavior of someone who has just given a necklace to someone else. That makes me think the necklace was more than likely stolen rather than gifted. Now, the state presented the reason for Jeff murdering Dick was that he was still angry about being ditched in Orlando a month or two earlier. If that's the case, then why not try for a first-degree premeditated murder charge? Why go for second degree? It just doesn't make sense. But if we're going to talk motive, well, there's no greater motive than love and money, right? And it sounded like, by all accounts, that Dick was all about the money. And I believe he went after Bruce and basically ran Bruce out of town because Bruce had stolen drugs from him during that Mother's Day weekend. Remember, we heard Roy Ross and Joyce Young both tell police that Bruce had told them he stole drugs from Dick. A lot of drugs. Well, Dick didn't respond well when people did not pay him back. Here, once again, is Bill Staples, Rita's boyfriend. But there is one other thing that I, that I did experience, and that was about a week and a half back, Dick had uh, made a threat to me that he was, he told me to watch my back. He called my house, told me to watch my back. And, he called your house? Yeah, your home and, and be careful of my customers and things like that, because he's going to mess me out. And Why? then the next day, because he, he wanted me to pay back the money that he said Rita owed him. What did he think Rita owed the money for? Uh, money that he had loaned to her for various things. Mainly, I think the car, when her, when her granddaughter wrecked the car, she borrowed some money from him to fix the car and things like that. Okay. And I guess she not supposedly didn't pay him back. And okay, so what else did he say? He said, watch out for your customers? He told me, watch my back, watch, uh, be careful of my customers, that he was going to mess me up. And then about four days later, I got it written down in the truck. But it, 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 uh, he took a, somebody came by and took a uh, ice pick and busted punctured the sidewalls. Of your tires? Of my right front and rear tires. Did you report that? And he laughed. No, I didn't report it. I just I just annotated it on there because we knew he did it. He just laughed and Rita, Rita told him, asked him why did he go and do that, and he just laughed. Wow. So a week or so before being murdered, Dick supposedly goes to Rita's boyfriend's home and punctures his tires because he wanted Staples to pay him back the money that Rita owed him. Now, I suggest the police totally dropped the ball on the drug and money issue and focused right on Jeff. Bruce attacked Dick. He hurt him. He swung a club at him. He grabbed screwdrivers and bricks in an attempt to hurt Dick on Mother's Day. He stole drugs from him. Now remember, during the trial, Bruce says this about returning the drugs and making up with Dick before they went to Alabama. He said he was sorry that he ever, ever uh, Talk, spoke to me the way he did, and he said he respected me more as a man after doing that than he ever did. And I had, when I had hit him, he had uh, Percocets, and I had taken the Percocets from him, and I returned them to him. And he gave me $300, and he said, just take care of your mother, and you, you have a nice life, and, and make sure she's all right. That's, that's the last words I spoke with the man. So in this version, Dick actually apologizes to Bruce and gives him money 
and Bruce returns the stolen drugs. I wonder if a rainbow or a unicorn appeared at that tender moment as well. Now, Prosecutor Rob Parker has an explanation for why Bruce, Judy, and Rita's stories are all over the place and change constantly, and why their trip lasted three days. These, uh, these guys, keep in mind they're, they're junkies. Yeah, right. And they just they just got lost. They, they, did, they went past I-10, and they ended up in Georgia before they realized what the hell was going on, I think. That was my take on it, John. Yeah. Um, uh, but you're right. We didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't have camera on them. I'm not trying to be funny, but we didn't have right, right. real strong, uh, you know, second minute by minute, hour by hour evidence of receipts and things like that. There was, that was certainly put to the jury and explained to them, and they had to determine what was reasonable uh, or whether or not it met the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. But my issue is that no such leeway is afforded Jeff, also a drug addict, when he couldn't remember the exact mall in Orlando he went to that Saturday. He must be lying, according to the cops, even though he told them that he had taken several Oxycontins that day and was obviously a pillhead. At least Parker does admit that the Alabama trio didn't have real strong evidence of their movements that weekend. Okay, so my last little bit of circumstantial evidence is this slip-up by Judy Foley in court when Rob Parker is questioning her on the witness stand. Now, did you drive? Rita did, yes. We rented a car. She later changed that when Laura asked her on cross-examination if she was sure they rented a car. You said earlier you guys rented a car to go there. You didn't take Rita's car? The Red Sunfire? Yeah, we took Rita's car. Took Rita's car? Hmm, so I could be wrong, but Judy, Bruce, and Rita don't really strike me as the kind of people who often rent cars. Why would that even slip out? I think it only becomes a slip-up if you rent cars often and were just mistaken for a moment. But them? Here? Could it have been that they drove Rita's Sunfire to Jacksonville and then to Georgia before coming back in a rental sometime Sunday to kill Dick before heading back to Alabama? Remember, the only hotel receipt they produce is from Monday evening in Alabama. So why do we care? Why does Jeff Abramowski need a new trial? How about a cop lied on the witness stand? Two inmates came forward to say they were recruited by detectives to give false testimony against Jeff? Judy, Bruce, and Rita lied on the witness stand? The DNA evidence is dubious at best and is even marked by a question mark on the report. Evidence at the scene points to Judy Foley and Bruce Foley. Jeff's attorney was not qualified for the trial and suffering from mental illness and was not taking her medications. Five witnesses proved Dick was not murdered on Saturday, the day prosecutors say Jeff killed him. So what happens now? Bruce Foley will continue to live out his days on lifetime probation in Alabama as a registered sex offender. Laura Seamers will continue fighting for Jeff's freedom. Rob Parker and Gary Harrell will continue their retirements, but hey Gary, if you ever change your mind and you want to talk to me, I'm still interested. Jeff's daughter, Jamie, taken once by an appellate attorney who did nothing except take her money and is no longer practicing, is trying to raise more money on a social media platform 
to find another attorney. And you, what about you? Hopefully you leave the podcast changed just a little by what you heard. Hopefully you'll understand that, yes, there are innocent people in prison and that police and prosecutors can't always be trusted. Perhaps you'll want to get involved. Perhaps you'll write letters to your congressman or to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or State Attorney Phil Archer asking him to look at these cases. Or maybe you'll just want to write to Jeff and tell him how you feel about the case. And Jeff, what about Jeff? Well, he'll keep on serving his life sentence. He will keep missing Christmases and birthdays and other important family milestones with his children and grandchildren. He will no doubt continue trying to prove his innocence until he can no longer fight. He will likely never be able to listen to this podcast. And me, well, I've got to say that this has been the season that has affected me the most. I've worked on this case now for close to eight months, and it's taken a lot out of me. I'm sad the end is here, but I'm relieved at the same time. Eventually, I'll identify a topic for next season of Murder on the Space Coast and start working on that, but I'll never give up on Jeff's case and promise to report any developments in his case right here. Again, I'm John Torres, and it's been my honor to have you along with me on this journey. Until next time. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast at 321Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers. And the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.